Welcome to the Big Drink Rethink podcast with me, your host, Anna Donaghy. If you've noticed that the drinking culture in the UK is changing and you're curious about why and what this means to your world, then this is the podcast for you. Throughout this series, I will be chatting with the thought-provoking, forward-thinking people at the heart of this shift to find out what makes them tick and to explore the sober curious perspective from all angles. And I'll also be giving you oodles of personal tools and tactics to help you get on board the big drink rethink. Hello, and here we are a few episodes in, and this is the first of the episodes that I'm calling Toolkit Sessions. So I'm going to be dropping these in every few episodes to bundle up the good advice from guests and drop in some nuggets of my own and generally provide the very practical tools to help you along with your own rethinking. So they're a kind of pause and let's consider what we've chatted through so far kind of thing. Again, all the resources that I mention in these episodes, and in fact throughout the whole series, can be found on my website, thebeliefscoach.com. That's the beliefs, B-E-L-I-E-F-S, coach.com, where you cannot miss the link on the homepage to the Big Drink Rethink resources. So head there to download the facts, sheets, and the exercises that I mentioned. And I 100% promise you, I'm not going to hit you up with spam. I do keep an eye on how much the resources are being used and which are the most popular, simply so I can understand, you know, make sure that I'm responding to need and serving up useful stuff. But let's let's jump in anyway with a summary of kind of the theme so far. So I think the overarching theme so far for me is this principle of mindfulness, not the wholesale practice of mindfulness that we've probably all likely heard of in the context of mental health and well-being, although that is a brilliant practice and we will be talking about that at some point. But what we've talked about so far is adopting a mindfulness simply in your approach to drinking, simply becoming more aware of your drinking. It's kind of the opposite of mindless drinking, So when you're mindful, if you think about it, you're conscious or aware of something. So I'm trying to think of an example. I am mindful of how many snacks I eat on a day when I'm not exercising, or I'm mindful of what I'm sticking in my shopping trolley because I know how much things cost these days. Okay, and that's the opposite of mindless automatic behavior. So mindless is the opposite, right? It's where we have no thought for consequences. And I guess we talk about it in terms of mindless violence or mindless vandalism. It's behavior that you just can't justify or explain as having any rationale behind it. And this idea of becoming more mindful of why you're drinking, what you're drinking, and how you're drinking is really what's pinged out from those episodes with Professor David Nutt, and and also Adrian Charles. Thinking about it as clicking out of autopilot, so you just become a bit more hands-on and more engaged in your drinking behavior. To be honest, it's the first thing we talk about when I'm coaching someone. It's this idea about becoming an, an observer 
of your own behavior. When I start working with people, I don't suggest they stop drinking. It's really counterintuitive to a lot of people. It's not what they expect. But if someone's going to find it easy to stop or cut back, then the chances are they wouldn't be talking to me in the first place, right? So my principle is carry on as you were, but start observing your behavior. Start learning about why you drink the way you do, the situations, the motivations, and then the patterns and the behaviors so that you just become more self-aware. You might not like what you observe or more commonly, you may not understand it, but that awareness is the start point of everything. And it's the very foundational start point of your own personal rethink. So let's start with applying this mindfulness to why we drink. The primary reason to drink alcohol is to change the way we feel. The motivation may be to make more of positive emotions or to reduce negative ones, but fundamentally, it is to change the way we feel. And if it weren't, then a non-alcoholic drink would be just appealing. I always say that we give alcohol jobs to do. Professor David Nutt talked in terms of identifying your core motivations for drinking. So not the one-off events like stag do's and birthdays, but the main reason you generally find yourself drinking But David and I are both really talking about the same thing. And he suggests in his book that there are four types of drinkers based on research done in Australia. So I've popped a link in the show notes to a summary sheet on this. But the first group is social drinkers. You know, are you a social drinker where the main motivation is simply to celebrate and have fun? And of course, you know, we're preconditioned by everything that we see around us from an early age to believe that adult socialising is all about drinking. Very often the people who say they can take it or leave it would fall into this category. So when there's something to celebrate or when they want to go out socially and have fun, they will drink. But if there isn't anything to celebrate or they're not out on a social event, then they don't. Simple, really. Now, in terms of the jobs we're giving alcohol to do, Social drinkers are kind of saying, alcohol helped me have fun. Alcohol helped me feel more sociable. And this is a big one. Alcohol helped me feel more socially confident, which can encompass feeling more relaxed, more interesting, more funny, less self-conscious, etc. Okay, so that's social drinkers. The second group of drinkers he describes as conformists. So people who drink to fit in and do what others are doing. So following the crowd. And this fits with one of our most basic human needs, this really fundamental and universal human need for belonging. If your friends are going out drinking, it is very difficult to be the one who doesn't drink. And fear of unsettling or challenging the group dynamic is ultimately fear of rejection. And it is one of the biggest, most common fears I come across amongst people who would honestly like to cut down for their own benefit. But it can operate at a much bigger social level too. Many years ago, when I started work in Birmingham, it was my first job. I I worked for a car company and I worked on the manufacturing track for about six months as a graduate, as, as work experience. 
And I worked with a really lovely bunch of blokes. And in fact, back in the day, I was the only woman on my entire section of the track. Although I'm pretty sure that's by no means the case now. We worked shifts and it was really common to finish a shift and go out for drinks. And I was desperately keen in the environment of the pub after shifts to fit in and belong, to be accepted as one of them. And looking back, I definitely drank and kept pace with them for those purposes. And today, in my coaching role, I speak to graduates all the time who talk of the peer pressure of going into new jobs and fitting in. So this is, you know, this is a really strong dynamic and these kind of drinkers, this group of drinkers, the conformists are basically saying of the jobs we're asking of alcohol, alcohol, please help me have a tribe. Alcohol, help me fit in, help me bond, help me be accepted, help me form and maintain friendships. The third group of drinkers are thrill seekers, or in his book, David refers to them as enhancers. I tend to talk about them in terms of thrill seekers. You're in this category if you drink because it's exciting, or you drink because it gives you a thrill. If you fall into this category, you're likely to go out with the intention of getting drunk Now, I'm afraid that this is a high-risk group to be in, A, because of the amount of alcohol that's invariably involved, and this is the category where you'd most find binge drinkers, but B, because the thrill-seeking motivations will likely make you a risk-taker, and of course, our judgment gets severely impaired when we've been drinking. When we binge drink and we stack drinks one on top of the other quickly, before we know their combined effect, it can all go horribly wrong very fast. So if you think you're this kind of a drinker, then it really would be a very good idea indeed to start trying to cut down very seriously as this is a route to personal injury causing harm and also to addiction because over time, alcohol raises your threshold to feel joy you end up needing that alcohol to feel any level of joy and nothing else compares. So here the jobs we're asking of alcohol would be, oh, you know, alcohol makes life more exciting or in many cases make life less tedious and boring or make me more exciting. And then the fourth group, the final group, in David's categorization of people who drink to cope. And this is by far and away the fastest and slippery route into addiction. If you're drinking to cope with stress and if you're drinking to forget your worries, then you're effectively self-medicating with alcohol and using it for anaesthetic qualities. It used to be used in hospitals as an anaesthetic until it was actually deemed too dangerous and too blunt a method. So 
The British Medical Council refer to alcohol as the nation's favourite coping mechanism for the sheer number of people who fall into this group. Do you remember in the first episode that I said alcohol is particularly addictive if you drink enough of it for the wrong reasons and in the wrong circumstances? This is that high risk and vulnerable group. Because life is stressful. Finances are stressful. Work can be stressful. Parenting, really stressful. So if you drink to reduce stress, but stress has come on a daily basis, then it's really easy to find yourself drinking on a daily basis and becoming dependent and addicted. And if you feel that you fall into this category, then it is particularly important to think about ways in which you can cope that don't involve alcohol. Because the jobs you're asking alcohol to do here are alcohol, please numb the bad feelings. Please make me feel less stressed. Please make me feel happier. You know, let me escape. Help me forget for a while. But effectively what you're doing is papering over the cracks and addressing the symptoms of stress, but you're not addressing the causes. They're all still there. They're all still there the next day, you know, with bells on because now you're hungover and lacking in the energy and clarity to deal with things as well. So what we will be doing over the course of this series is to look at better tools on, on how to address those sources of stress and and, and not just the symptoms. But look, the big watch out here, whatever type of drinker you may be, problems with alcohol arise when we come to believe that alcohol is the answer and that it is our only tool. So when a social drinker believes they can't have fun without drinking or a conformer believes that they can't fit in and be their authentic selves without drinking, even if that wouldn't be their choice. Or thrill-seekers can't elevate their emotions without it. Or copers can't face the day. The reality is that throughout life, there are stages, and we will move from being one kind of a drinker to another, from a conformist looking for, you know, your tribe to fit into at university or when we start a new job, you know, into a coper, when we encounter stress-related events such as relationship breakdowns and divorce and bereavement and redundancy and young parenting, etc. You know, and it's safe to say that if you have formed a real attachment to drinking, then you might look at all of these categories and see yourself in them to a certain extent. But in the spirit of becoming mindful and aware. It's a really good thing to know what type of drinker you are most of the time based on what your dominant motivation is, the reason why you most commonly find yourself drinking. Because as I say, some types of drinking are more likely to get you into problems sooner than others. And it's got to be a good thing to know that if you've stepped in to one of those more vulnerable groups, right? So do have a think about that. 
And as I say, there's a sort of a downloadable summary in the notes. Now let's recap what's been said by Dave and Adrian about applying some mindfulness to what we're drinking. So as a society, we like to commonly talk about alcohol and drugs. When David Nutt was appointed advisor to the government, pointing out that alcohol is a drug and a highly addictive one at that made him very unpopular for all of the reasons we talked about when he came on as a guest. But alcohol is a drug. It's a psychoactive drug, which in simple terms means that it stimulates and activates the central nervous system. Other psychoactive substances include caffeine, cocaine, LSD, nicotine, cannabis, for which most of us would set some rules. For obvious reasons, most of us have stopped smoking, mindful of its dangers. I have a rule that I sometimes break about no coffee after lunch, mindful of caffeine's effects on me. And I'm assuming that there are drugs in there like cocaine that you would simply avoid. If a doctor prescribes you drugs, you take them and you administer them to the prescribed amount, you know, mindful of the side effects. You wouldn't scoff eight, four times a day when the dosage recommendations only say take two at a time. The point I'm making here is an important one that both Adrian and David also made around knowing how much you're drinking and being mindful of how much you're drinking. In fact, when David came onto the podcast, he suggested that keeping an eye on how much we drink is as fundamental as keeping an eye on and tracking other key measures like our weight and our blood pressure, which makes total sense, especially if you're one of those people who like to feel that you're generally pretty fit and healthy. I know people who'll tell me what their resting heart rate is, their recovery times, they monitor their sleep patterns religiously, and pretty much every other aspect of their health, but they have absolutely no concept of how much alcohol they consume. And the point is that most of us don't. Because alcohol intake is measured in units, and the government and the drinks industry have little interest in helping us keep track. So without clear and helpful labelling, it remains pretty abstract. For example, in the UK, one unit is 10 millilitres or 8 grams of pure alcohol. And the NHS or government guidelines are 14 units a week. There you go. As I said, completely abstract and pretty useless unless we talk about it in terms of the most common drink measures. So here you are. A standard glass, which is 175 mil, a sort of a medium glass down at the pub, a standard glass of average strength wine, let's say 12%, is 2.1 units. A large glass, 250 mil, of the same wine, 12%, is three units. A bottle of wine therefore has about 9 to 10 units. A pint, which is 568 mil, of low-strength beer, lager or cider of around 
3.6%, is 2 units. A pint of higher strength lager, cider or beer, around 5%, is 3 units. And a single measure of most spirits is 1 unit. Now there is a sum to calculate the units contained with any drink, but those are the key kind of most common measures and I've popped a fact sheet into the resources on the website. But those, those, as I said, are the sort of basic principles and rules of thumb for the most common drink volumes we might find ourselves with, you know, a medium or a large glass of wine or a pint of beer, lager or cider. Clearly you halve it if you're having half pints. Knowing what you drink is really important. It means that you can be mindful of it creeping up. But also, if you actively want to cut down, you've got to know where your start point is. So over the next couple of weeks, drink as you would normally drink, but keep a diary or use a drinking app, of which there are several. This is again just all about becoming aware and getting the baseline knowledge of where you are. And if you're feeling the fear and the resistance to doing this, then the chances are you possibly know that the number is going to be high and you're already worrying about what this will mean. I get it, but please don't stick your head in the sand. In the case of alcohol, ignorance is not bliss. Unfortunately, it's just ignorance. So put your big boy or your big girl pants on and do the maths. Because remember that getting a sense of where you are now is not the same as making a commitment to do something about it. You can still choose what to do with that information and you may choose to do nothing at all. But remember too what Adrian said about the choices not being binary. This idea that what keeps so many of us stuck in heavy drinking is the fear that we're going to have to give up or that we're going to be made to give up. No one is going to make you do anything. Be guided by how you feel when you look at that number and consider what it might be possible to bring it down to with just a few simple tactics like avoiding those strong beers or drinking more slowly. And, you know, we will be looking at many of these little tactics over the course of the series. Look, the more you drink, the greater the health risks. I think we all know that. But Adrian made a brilliant point that it goes up exponentially So if you go from drinking 15 units per week to 30, you're not increasing your risk by as much as if you go from 30 to 60, okay? And the good news is that looking at it from the other way around in terms of reduction, there are significant marginal gains to be had. If you can go from 60 to 50 or from 50 to 40. So if your drinks tally is high, do not be paralyzed by what feels like an impossible task to bring it down to the recommended 14 units. I know from working with people who are very heavy drinkers that it is entirely possible to do that. You can get it down to that. But in the meantime, just think about getting from 60 to 50 or from 50 to 40. And this is going to do you relatively more good than, say, from going from 20 to 10. And the key approach that Adrian had for doing this 
was simply looking at cutting out the drinks you neither needed, wanted, or particularly enjoyed. And David Nutt also suggested you should never have a drink that you don't value. I think this is brilliant advice. Both Adrian and David are highlighting the concept of diminishing returns where every incremental drink not only delivers less value than the one before, but also risks obscuring any benefits of the initial couple of drinks. So in simple terms, if you have a high drinks tally when you've worked out your weekly intake, there are almost certainly, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, there will be a significant number of drinks from which you gain little or no benefit or enjoyment. You could call it quits of an evening and knock those drinks off your tally straight away. But you've got to be aware of them again. And in his book, Adrian mentions a friend who says that he makes a note of the pros and cons of drinks over the course of an evening. Not always, obviously, but when he started out, you know, looking at his own drinking, he conducted this exercise of making a note of the pros and cons of drinks over the course of an evening as an excellent way to highlight the point. So, for example, you're looking forward to going to the pub after work. Drink number one, always the best. Very, very pleasurable. Very, very satisfying. All pros, no downsides, no cons, pure pleasure. Drink number two, never as good as the first, but often still good. Drink number three, probably doesn't even register on a positive scale, because that's what drink number one and drink number two did. But downsides start to creep in, you may be feeling a bit bloated, you're maybe beginning to snack unhealthily. Drink number four, no positives anymore, but there are now some definite negatives coming in. You might be struggling to finish it. You might be beginning to feel a bit unbalanced, a bit disorientated. Maybe you're sort of drinking for the sake of it. Conversation is waning. Maybe you're feeling a little bit tired and so on. And so on and so on. And by the end of the night, if you're anything like I was, you've now gone on to have at least another few, none of which delivered a single positive. You've been craving the sofa for the last two hours, and now you're staggering home to raid the fridge and consume even more calories. The point that Adrian is making, which is brilliant, is that a seven-drink night can be 19 to 20 units of alcohol whilst it's probably only the first three drinks that delivered enjoyment. And if you'd have stopped there or had them more slowly over the course of the evening, you would instead have consumed eight units instead of the 20, halving your intake. It's amazing when you think about it like that. It's a really useful exercise, which I thoroughly recommend you do. So there's a link in the notes to an example chart. And if you think that sounds like a bit too much effort, do it anyway, even if it's just notes on your phone, because you only have to do it once or twice to see the point of it. It's just a very, very valuable exercise in mindful drinking. 
but it really enforces his very simple message as well, that less is more. Enjoy the drinks you enjoy. Cut out the ones that are basically pointless. So head to thebeliefscoach.com. Go to the section on the Big Drink Rethink for free summaries and the charts I've mentioned in this toolkit episode. And I'm going to point out again that my Rethink program is also on my website. It's a six-week structured and coaching-led program. It's not a dry challenge. It's a coaching-led exploration of your personal beliefs around alcohol, the kind of drinker you are, which we've talked about here, and the jobs that you give it to do. It's incredible value, and you'll find it there on thebeliefscoach.com too. And again, I'm putting in some links to the notes. So thank you for tuning in. I will be back next week with another guest episode with more perspectives to fuel the big drink rethink. Thank you for listening and getting curious. Please rate, review and follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're choosing to listen. And don't forget to tune in to the next episode. And you can find out more about the Big Drink Rethink by heading to my website, thebeliefscoach.com. That's thebeliefs, B-E-L-I-E-F-S, coach.com, where you will see clear links to the show. Mm-hmm.